Hi, this is Bob Groves. Welcome to our podcast series, Faculty and Research. We're joined today by Professor Robin Dillon Merrill, a uh, professor and area coordinator for the Operations and Information Management Group at the McDonough School of Business and faculty director for the Undergraduate Business Program. Robin's research seeks to understand and explain how and why people make the decisions they do under conditions of great uncertainty and risk. This research specifically examines critical decisions that people have made following near-miss events in situations with severe outcomes. These include hurricane evacuation, terrorism, cybersecurity, and NASA mission management. Robin has received research funding from a variety of places, including the National Science Foundation, NASA, the Department of Defense, and Department of Homeland Security, and through the USC's National Center for Risk and Economic Analysis for Terrorism Events. She's also consulted and served as an expert in several National Academies committees, that include the review of the New Orleans Regional Hurricane Protection Projects. And she's applied risk analysis techniques to securing the Department of Energy's special nuclear materials. It's important also to know that from 2015 to 2017, she was the co-chair of the Georgetown Environment Initiative, an act of great service to the institution. And then a stint between 2017 and 2019 in the National Science Foundation as a program director and the engineering directorate. So Robin, we're happy that you were able to join us today. And I wonder if we could start this work on near misses. I know you continue to be involved in. So what's your work on that right now? What's, what's exciting you of your current projects? Okay, thank you, Bob. And thank you for that nice introduction. At one point, I was interviewed for Wire magazine, and the author of that article, he asked me, he said, did you invent near misses? And I said, no, I don't have enough, a big enough ego to say that, to claim that I've invented near misses. But what we've tried to do with our research is that we tried to shine a light on expanding the concept of the near miss. And so in particular, people realize when something really bad almost happens, But what they don't realize is when something really bad could have happened, but they just got lucky and then they got a really good outcome and they focus on the outcome because we know that there's a very strong outcome bias that people have. So what we've spent more than a decade doing is trying to get people to focus on these kind of could have been events rather than these almost bad events. One of my current projects um, in this field is we're actually working with Infrabel, which is the Belgian railroad. And they have a group of safety folks who are really interested in trying to learn from their near misses. And I was on a call just this week where they were saying that they have a thousand safety incidents. And what they're spending time doing as a committee is going through the thousand safety incidents that occur annually. And they're identifying the 200 of those that are near misses. And what we're trying to educate them about is that Actually, the whole thousand that they have are probably things that they should be learning from and that what they're spending time trying to bin these into is these were almost bad events rather than recognizing they flagged these thousand serious incidents that they considered to be problems with safety. 
and that that's what they should be looking at. They need to be looking at more of the data, not less of the data. First, let's get our terms right. So what is a near miss? We define a near miss as any event where there are the situation exists that you could get a bad outcome, but by chance, you don't get the bad outcome. And so one of the kinds of near misses that we actually have not focused that much in our research on is when you have the individual who does a really heroic save, because that is an individual who was at the right place at the right time. And that's not usually what we see. And we focus on the ones that where you really just get lucky. And part of the problem and why we try to shine a light on all this is that scientists and engineers and managers, they don't like to think about luck. But in particular, what one of the biggest motivating examples of all of this research was the NASA space shuttle. And they knew that the debris was a problem. They studied the debris coming off of various aspects of the shuttle and the external tank. And they knew this was a problem. But over time, when they didn't have a serious enough event, then they worried less about it. And they worried less and less and less about it over time. But what they really didn't realize was they really were just pulling balls out of an urn like you would talk about in a statistics class. And the Space Shuttle Columbia was just that black ball in an urn of mostly white balls. It was when a big enough piece of foam hit a sensitive enough portion of the orbiter and they really thought that they understood what they were doing and they thought that they could handle the situation and they really were just pulling balls out of an urn. Is, is that sort of what you mean by outcome bias? Right, exactly. Yeah. Like if there had ever been a case where they'd seen near burn through on the shuttle or there were obvious signs that it was almost a bad event, they would have paid attention. I really do believe it. But because they came back and yeah, some tiles were dinged up. We had these kind of problems, but nothing almost bad nearly happened. And so they just fixed it. The tiles just became a problem that they, a maintenance problem. When you got back, you, the shuttle went through maintenance repair on the tiles that got damped. Let's zoom out a bit. I think we have a sense of the kind of issues you're studying, but I'm not clear why you find them fascinating. So why have you devoted so much of your energy to these sorts of issues? Well, because I actually really believe that I can have an impact. And that was one of the nice things about the time that I got to spend at the National Science Foundation, managing the program in human disasters in the built environment, that when these projects have good outcomes, we actually save lives. So you feel like if you actually can wake people up to things or get them to be more aware of their data or what their situation is, you really could in many cases save lives. The other thing that I think excites me about it is just really how common it is. And we even see this like in my own family that uh, it wasn't a problem now because my daughter is now in high school, but when she was going to a home daycare and I picked her up on Monday, my husband picked her up on Tuesday and or I picked her up on Monday, Tuesday, he picked her up on Wednesday and he came back and he said, Pam redid her kitchen. I said, yeah, I know it looks really nice. And he said, she took out a load bearing wall. There's nothing holding up the second story of her house. And I said, what? I said, and he's very handy. So I said, you need to go back and get something to prop this up. And he looked at me and he's like, oh, well, it's been fine. I mean, she did it a week ago. And I said, that's what I studied 
Like that's exactly what I did. Just because it hasn't fallen yet, doesn't mean it's not gonna fall tomorrow. And so I made him intervene and she got it all fixed and she got the beam put in the metal beam to hold up her second story of her house. But it's such a common thing for people to be dismissive of risk when they don't see obvious bad outcomes. It was a perfectly great kitchen remodel. It looked really nice, but there was nothing holding up the second story of her house. So I assume when you're doing your work, it's not just risk assessment, but you also have to balance the costs of reducing the risk. Give us some insight into how that enters the equation when you're dealing with real problems. It certainly varies. So when lives are at stake, most people don't really want to make a cost-benefit trade-off. In NASA's case, it wasn't about cost. They were maintaining the tiles. It was more about recognizing that they really did have a flawed design and there wasn't really another alternative. So that one was less about cost. Certainly some of the work that we've done in hurricane evacuation, when it does become an individual's cost, people are trading off, well, you know, I've evacuated the last couple of times. It cost me certain amount and all of the expenses associated with evacuation. And then that certainly influences people to discount the need to do it again. So I think that what we still are trying to do is, I think, overcome the folks who are trying to make this cost-benefit trade-off where they see the cost now versus not really seeing the benefit because nothing has happened and they didn't get the bad outcome. But in some cases, it's only a matter of time. Mm -hmm. Got it. Give us a sense of how this research passion you have fits inside a business school and have you been able to integrate your research interests into your teaching and student mentoring and so on? Give us a sense of that part of your life. It's about organizations learning. That's really the management discipline that a lot of it falls into because organizations have problems and organizations need to search for solutions to their problems. And it will be under different conditions when organizations choose to search or not search. And what we're trying to do is help shine the light on the need to be able to recognize that you have problems. We actually, I have a second project going on right now, actually with coal mining, and we have safety data from coal mines. And one of the things that we actually see is that union mines report more incidents but the incidents at union mines are less severe. And so that is clearly within the scope of business decision-making for what kind of culture you're creating in your company, what kind of reporting culture are you creating, what kind of safety culture are you creating? And all of those things need to be recognized by the business leaders. And I assume thinking of it this way, there's a risk assessment and risk-taking decisions in every aspect of business, but every aspect of life, right? It really is a way of thinking almost, it seems. Absolutely. And I think the, the one thing that I've steered clear from is the finance area. Whenever I seem to present my finance colleagues, they're like, oh, yes, this could be applicable here too. And I, I just want to stay away from the finance researchers. They've got their own ways of doing things. But I think for everything else, we've actually found a lot of fit in a lot of very different applications. 
Tell us a bit about the sojourn you took at the National Science Foundation, which is an interesting, in one sense, it's an act of public service for which the rewards are not immediately personal, but really, you know, building a field. In another way, it took you away from your research and teaching at Georgetown. So looking back on that, what was the value of that to you and to the fields you care about? I think it was very valuable. It was an amazing experience. It's a great place to work. If people have the opportunity to take a break from what they're doing and go work at the National Science Foundation, it's just a great place to show up every day because they really are trying to find the best projects and mentor the most young people and produce the best research. So this, on a day-to-day basis, that was phenomenal. It was also very satisfactory to be able to contribute to the community and to really realize how beneficial these research grants are to young researchers who are trying to solve problems. And then it also still just even built my own network. And actually the project that I have with Infravel right now, it is actually with a collaborator who I've known since I first graduated from grad school and I started my first teaching job. Costas Triantis was a great mentor to me early in my career, but then once I came to Georgetown, I was working on different things and such. And actually, he had also been a program director recently at the National Science Foundation. And so he kept turning up at various different events. And so then he started talking to me about his project that he had going with InfraBell. And I looked at him and I said, I bet they have problems with near misses. And he said, you know what? They have problems with near misses. And so it was actually because of contacts and collaboration and being able to talk to people that you know and that are interested in similar things that we've actually have been working on this InfraBell project for the last year and a half. Let's switch gears a bit. All of us are interested in how our colleagues got into what they're doing. We have colleagues who discovered their interests when they were seven years old. And we have other colleagues who had a late discovery about their passion and completely switched careers. So tell us a little about your journey and how did you end up where you are? What was the way you got here? Mine was all based on needing the right mentors at the right time. I was an undergrad at the University of Virginia and I showed up and I discovered systems engineering. I like to think about problems as systems. And a professor in systems engineering that I met when I was a freshman wanted to get me involved in his research. And I actually started getting paid as an hourly research assistant um, in my sophomore year. And I did that through second, third, fourth year. I continued and did a combined bachelor's master's program and worked with this professor for a master's thesis. And then actually while I was a graduate student in completing my master's, He would also bring in other colleagues and people would come and give talks and things. And that's actually, he had invited Professor Elizabeth Pate Cornell, who was from Stanford, to come and give a talk. And I was just fascinated by that. And then I ended up going to work with her at Stanford for my PhD. And she ended up being a great mentor and helping really facilitate opportunities which helped me turn these opportunities into NASA projects and into various other National Academy studies. And so meeting the right mentors at the right time. And also I do know one of the things that you're passionate about is undergraduate research. And I'm gonna be a 
role model for that. Having done undergraduate research starting in my second year, that's when I decided that this was what I wanted to do. It looks like you were blessed with great mentors and not all of us are, but reflecting back on that, what are the ingredients of a great mentor? And probably it motivates your own mentoring aspirations, but what are those attributes that really work for a mentor? Obviously, genuinely caring about the individual that you're trying to mentor. But I think more than that, when I really reflect on really good mentors that I've had, it is that they do create opportunities for you. Like in my case, all of the people that have been critical mentors for me have been fabulously successful by the time that I met them. And they used some of that to really actually help me either refer me to opportunities or to studies or to research partners or something like that. And so really being willing to actually take active steps to help your mentee to promote them, I think has been really, really critical. Makes sense. So it it seems to me you could have ended up in an engineering school, but you're in a business school. Tell us about that choice. It's probably not an accident that a critical part of my research is about luck, because I really do think that you can put yourself in the right position and you can study as hard as you can, and then you're in the right place to take advantage of luck. But at the end of the day, luck is a really critical factor. And when I was finishing up at Stanford, I did interview for engineering management positions, but I actually met some faculty at the business school at Virginia Tech, and they thought I would be great in the classroom. And I said, I don't have any business degrees. And they said, yeah, we still think you'd be great in the classroom. And we've got tech in our titles, so you can bring that aspect to it. So I did. I started at Virginia Tech, and I worked for Virginia Tech for two years in their business school. And then I'm a business school professor and I applied to the job at Georgetown and I got that after two years of teaching in a business school. And so I think it just was good luck that they thought that I would be a special addition to their department. So it seems to me a natural implication of these moves is that you find yourself between groups a lot. You have to translate across groups and you have to be a quick study on a nomenclature that you may not have training. Do you feel that? And what have you learned about how to navigate that intellectually? I think it's really interesting because I do, as a faculty member, that's what you do. You study. I mean, that's what you do every day. You have a research problem. You have to learn about it. You have to learn what other people already know about it. So You shouldn't become a professor if you're not interested in being a lifelong learner. But then I also think that one of the reasons that you and I interact the most at Georgetown is because we're both interested in interdisciplinary research. That I think some of the most challenging problems really need to be solved by interdisciplinary approaches to those research problems. And so I do think that my training and maybe my misfit in the business school initially helps me recognize how we can build that those interdisciplinary collaborations. Mm -hmm. And now that you're in a business school, what do you think about comparing the environment of an engineering school and business school? What's different? I assume you're keeping up with your colleagues who are in engineering schools. And what are the pros and cons of being in a business school as a trained engineer? 
I think one of the things that business schools are realizing, especially given the resource environment that everybody is facing, is that we should all be looking for research grants. That funded research projects, while business colleagues may have always thought that, that their research should be more theoretical and engineering is more applied, and therefore that's why you get research grants to do applied research to solve problems, I really do think that there is an opportunity to bring these communities closer together and that much of business school research can actually be funded by research grants. And I think that, that we could do more of that and that we will have to continue to do more of that. And I think even I saw that while I was at the National Science Foundation, that more business school faculty are starting to submit National Science Foundation grants and things like that because they realize that all of the resources that they may have been able to have in the past are not always going to continue in the future. I wonder if you could say more about your teaching. How do you avoid having your research activities conflict with your teaching activities? Have you figured out tricks to integrate those two parts of your mind somehow? So I teach different things and the different things that I teach involve or integrate research more. One thing that I teach is I teach a freshman seminar, which obviously has a lot of opportunity to talk about research. My freshman seminar is called um, Leadership in Sustainable Cities. And that is one of these complex systems problems with a lot of uncertainty that I'm really interested in trying to contribute. And I think that, again, meeting my goals of making a better society. So I'm really excited about that. And so there's a lot of opportunity to bring research and teaching together in that freshman seminar. Absolutely. I also teach an MBA elective in how do you do data visualization. And so that is certainly doesn't get a whole lot of research integrated into it. But by teaching it, I'm also staying current on all the current tools. And so using these current tools, I need to stay current too, so that I can be incorporating them into my research. And so by teaching students the, the latest tools that they need, I'm also forcing myself to stay current, and then I can bring all those tools into my own research. Interesting. One more question. I'm, I'm interested in how you choose research questions. So what is it about tons of things you could do, even in the area that it is pretty well defined the way you've defined it? So how do you decide the next thing to do? That one is actually really easy because it is pretty much based on who I would be collaborating with. At this point in my career, I have the option of being able to, your point, pick and choose what I want to work on. And I only want to work with nice people that I really like. And so that was basically when I was approached with this Infrabel project by this Custis Triantis, who is a, just a really nice individual who's been a lifelong friend. And he said, hey, do you want to work on this? And I said, I do. But actually, another part of that is I said I do, but we also have to bring in Peter Madsen, who's at BYU, because he is awesome also. And so we have had for at least the last year, we've had this great collaboration of a really cohesive team of really nice people who want to work together. And so at this point in time, I'm getting to choose to work with people that I really just actually enjoy working with. And I think that also gets to your theme about time management. I mean, how do you pick and choose what you have time to do? But if you're working with your friends, 
then this is what you enjoy doing. And so at the end of the day, I'm sending Peter and Custis emails or texts, and it's like I'm communicating with my friends. But we happen to be talking about near misses with rail traffic in Belgium, but it's what you enjoy doing. You know, this is a wonderful way to end it. I wish more people knew in the general public how much fun it can be to do research at the cutting edge when you have the right folks and the right problem around you and how deeply pleasurable the event is, you know, both because you know you're doing important work that can save lives in your case, but also that you've been able to do it in a way that's deeply pleasurable. It's a wonderful life. And it sounds like on that score, you've found a strain to mine that you're exploiting well. So I thank you, Robin, Dylan, Merrill, for sharing these thoughts with us. And thank you for being with us. You're welcome. I appreciate it.